welcome to the seventh podcast of American History 2 and the first in the year 2015. Uh, I am Mark McClay and I'm joined as always by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello and Happy New Year, Malcolm. And a Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners. So before we move on to our discussion of the 27th President of the United States, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Malcolm, I thought I'd kind of ask you if you had any recommendations that you might want to share from your holiday reading. You know, this, the you know the dirty little secret of being a historian is that you don't actually ever get to read what you want to read until until the holidays. So, I mean, is there anything you think our listeners might particularly enjoy? Yeah, there was two books in particular I read over the holiday period. One was uh, W. Bernard Carlson's book, uh, Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age, which just came out last year from Harvard University Press. Uh, and as I mentioned Tesla in our last uh, podcast, it's a fascinating book, really, really interesting biography of the life of Tesla. And it's also served to push me to reassess certain things I, I thought about the man and his era and his inventions. Something we might touch Is your on. Adoration being questioned. Not being not being questioned, but it's, it does what a good historian should do. It makes you reassess your viewpoint on certain things. Mm-hmm. And the other one I read was uh, Eric Schlosser's book, Command and Control, a uh, book about nuclear weapons safety. Uh, it was brought out by Penguin. It was a great success uh, and very interesting. I'm writing a review of it at the moment. Don't necessarily agree with all these uh, conclusions, but a very lively and interestingly written book. Right. What about yourself? Lively. What have you been reading? Uh, well, the one I, the one that probably stands out for me is, is a book that's probably written about 10, 15 years ago, something by by Gary Young, uh, the currently Guardian journalist, and you know he's written a few books on civil rights. He had a recent one on Martin Luther King's speech, but I was reading one called No Place Like Home, which is basically as a Black Briton, he he travelled the route of the freedom. Uh, freedom Riders travelled in 1961 I'm sure we'll discuss the Freedom Riders in future podcasts and it was a really fascinating insight in how far American race relations have come, how far they've still got to go but the bits I actually found most interesting for our British listeners were his comments on British race relations and, mm. and everything so I mean, uh, I mean we'll, we'll shove up those three on the on the website and people can have a look at them if they want and maybe we should also say, you mentioned the Freedom Rides which we'll come back to in a future podcast yeah. but if anyone's interested in that topic, Professor Ray Arsenault's book, uh, Freedom Riders, uh, which is about a foot from your elbow at the moment, yes, it is. as I see it, <laughs> might be something that people could look at uh, if they're interested in that topic. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so if we get back to our Teddy, as uh, as Theodore Roosevelt was affectionately known, uh, although I, I think you're going to tell us he didn't particularly love it, no. He hated getting called Teddy. His family and friends, actually, when he was growing up, called him Teddy. And he was most often called, uh, you know, he liked being called TD or TR. Te- he absolutely hated getting called Teddy. Yeah. I have that on good authority from a Roosevelt was, expert. You know, he, was, he was the first president to actually be known by his initials, you said there, TR. Which makes me think Martin Van Buren missed a trick. I think MVB would have been quite good. But, uh, so if we kind of get on to who, who Roosevelt was, just going to give you an idea. You know, born in 1858, so just before the beginning, uh, yeah, just before the beginning of the Civil War, to an aristocratic family in New York, uh, the Roosevelts. And the kind of, growing up, probably the defining event of his life was a tragic one, you know. Uh, here was a guy who had his mother and his wife die on the same day. And there's a very kind of poignant diary entry that, that Roosevelt writes that day, which just basically says, quote, the light has gone out of my life. Um, and from there on, to try and escape his grief from this, he, as a kind of aristocratic Easterner, he kind of banishes to begin ranching in North Dakota um, and kind of starts cultivating this Western image that will serve him well as a politician later later on. And indeed, despite the tragedy of death, he, was all, he also benefited from a couple of very important deaths himself to actually become president. I mean, uh, 
he became vice president in the first place because uh, a vice president, Garrett Holbert, died in 1899. And then when he was vice president, the president McKinley was assassinated. You know, I'm really quite shocked there is no great TR conspiracy theory given, like, you know, what the rest of American history has been subjected TR to. TR hired Leon Colgos to, to assassinate McKinley. Exactly. Um, I don't know how he did the heart disease for Hobart, though. That would be a wee bit trickier. Um, but basically, TR is this kind of big bundle of energy. You know, he's kind of known, constantly drank coffee the entire day. He has this big, beaming, wonderful, lovable face, if you see it, you know. Um, he's a, he's a, among his many talents, he's a prolific writer and historian. He writes what, you know, I don't know if it remains a defining kind of history of the Naval War of 1812. Probably because nobody wants to write another book on the Naval history of the War of 1812. Um, and he writes around 18 books in his life. You know, after he's president, he, feel he, needs, he feels the need to go to an, for an African safari and then to a jolly in the Brazilian jungle in his mid-50s where he almost dies. You know, and he dies a relatively young man at 61, but probably with the experience of about five lives. And, you know, like, I sort of think, like, you know, in today's generation, he'd be the type of person you would hate if he was your friend on Facebook because you would, it would be constantly, you know, posting kind of things that would make you jealous. Um, but kind of more serious, like, David McCulloch, the historian says that, in his opinion, Roosevelt was an actual genius. He uses that word. You know, he's a guy that was like a speed reading before anyone even knew what it was, had a pretty much a photographic memory, and he spoke various languages. Um, and, you know, all this, and he even managed to continue finishing a campaign speech at one point after surviving an assassination attempt. And claiming he feels as strong as a bull moose. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, is there anything you think we should add to that, Malcolm? Uh, he's very much a president of firsts, I think. And I should add that a lot of these uh, comments and anecdotes about, about TR and some of the more interesting stuff about his life, uh, we were lucky to get the help of Dr. Michael Cullinan at Northumbria University, yeah. who's a Roosevelt expert and very kindly uh, gave us some background on TR and some of the myths and legends that surround him. So mm -hmm. thanks very much to Mike for all his help uh, yeah, in definitely. kind of like putting together this podcast. So he's the first to be first president to be born in a city. Mm -hmm. So he you know, prior to that, you have what are called the log cabin presidents. You know, they kind of talk about the, you know, being born in a log cabin out in the backwoods somewhere, starting yeah. with Jackson and all that kind of thing. Uh, he was uh, the first president to travel abroad during his presidency, the first to send a transatlantic cable, uh, the first to invite uh, an African-American to dine at the White House. Isn't that amazing that that's some sort of special first? That's, the, the, yeah. That is actually something I mean, special that we place, remember. And yet they were uh, never able to dine at it. And also, there's, I mean, there's two kind of like, you know, overwhelming things that people always remember about TR, and that's the, the myth of the teddy bear and being called Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and the bully pulpit. So I'll go to the, the latter first. He always talked about the, the American presidency being the greatest bully pulpit, and by that he meant uh, a great platform for getting your message across and people listening to you. Because you're president, you can have an agenda and go, here's my agenda, and people listen to you. And he went, he called it the bully pulpit. Bully mm. meant great or good, yeah. as in bully for you, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Uh, so a great platform to speak and to be listened to. Uh, and so is that, bully pulpit, is that a, is a break from the past? I mean, because I think people would just assume that always presidents sort of promoted their message as president, no. I think it's, it's safe to say that, that Roosevelt uh, has a place as the first modern president. Uh, this is what the historian Serge Vicard 
uh, refers to him as. Uh, and as, as Mike Cullen has pointed out, uh, Lewis Gould, another historian, disagrees and says McKinley is the first modern president. Uh, but Roosevelt is the first president really to cultivate public opinion yep. for his policies. Think about using the idea of the bully pulpit mm -hmm. uh, and use the image of his personality and his person and the presidency uh, specifically for you know, public consumption. Yeah. Uh, you know, think of you know his image as a rancher, a cowboy, the Rough Riders going up San Juan Hill, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, so, and he also is the first president to take uh, executive action when Congress refuses to act, and we'll come back to that when we look at the Panama Canal. Uh, if I mean, unless there's anything you really want to go into now, I kind of want to nudge you along to the the kind of foreign policy side, and where you're probably more of an expert. Well, can I just yeah. take one minute to talk about the teddy bear thing? Go for okay. It. So, uh, what happens is there's this popular myth that you know the teddy he saved this bear cub when he was out on a hunting trip and everything and all that kind of thing. That's not quite true. Uh, he was on a hunting trip. Very briefly, he hadn't shot a bear yet. Okay. So the, the hunting guide went away and found this rather aged, decrepit bear, chased it up a tree, and the president was invited to shoot the bear. And he went, that's a bit unfair. You know, I'm not going to, that's unsportsmanlike. So he went, right, I'm not going to shoot the bear, but it looks a bit old and decrepit, so you probably shoot it and put it out as misery. Uh, and there was a cartoon appeared in the Washington Post showing Roosevelt kind of like, kind of like, you know, refusing to shoot the bear, and the guide holding onto the bear. And the bear is actually a, an adult bear. But over time, it gets reproduced as a bear cub, and then uh, a maker of like you know stuffed toys produces a bear toy bear and asks for permission to to call it the teddy bear. And then in Germany, a company called Steiff starts making st stuffed bears, and Margaret Steiff uh, starts making these these items. And in 1903, an American saw a stuffed bear that Steiff had made, ordered many of them, and then these bears came to be called teddy bears, and that makes the international connection uh, between okay. Europe and America and the teddy bear and all that kind of thing. But he didn't save a bear cub. It was a rather decrepit elderly bear that he refused to shoot, but had shot anyway. Okay. Well, I mean, by in terms of standards of historians ruining lovely myths, I actually think that one is... You've not ruined that too much. That's quite an interesting story, because uh, we always tend to be the bad guys when, you know, we, we point out that things aren't actually as, you know, romantic and wonderful as they seem. Um, so, I mean... To to push along to to TR TR and his kind of his legacy or his his approach to foreign policy. I mean, so I mean, let's talk about about his presidency, which lasted from nineteen oh one to nineteen oh nine. He was a president at the dawn of a new century. Um, so Malcolm, since I know that Roosevelt was the first American to win the Nobel Peace Prize, okay, I can only assume that at this stage you're going to tell me that he was also America's first peace loving hippie in the White House. I'm going to have to correct you on that, I think. He wasn't, he wasn't really. I mean, I'll, I'll come into this a bit later. He was a, he did believe firmly in diplomacy. Uh, but it doesn't mean he was entirely, you know, a peaceful man. I mean, the famous quote ascribed to Roosevelt is walk softly and carry a big stick. Great so you, you engage in diplomacy, but you've got to be prepared to hit someone with a big stick when things go wrong. Uh, his, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for brokering peace between, uh, Tsarist Russia and Japan. Uh, during the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, uh, where the, the Japanese had annihilated the Russian fleet at the Battle of Tsushima. And Roosevelt comes in and he brokers this peace and wins the Nobel Peace Prize for it. But he was not always a peaceful man. I mean, in 1898, with the Spanish-American War, he uh, gets a band of, you know, 
roughnecks, desperados and mercenaries together in the form of the Rough Riders heads off to Cuba and according to myth and legend wins the Battle of San Juan Hill mm. almost single-handed. Again there's another story that's surrounded by mythology and Roosevelt's use of image Mm-hmm. And positioning himself and you know creating a personal mythology. I mean, that's where he begins to build, build the momentum that gets his political career really kicking Ab- on. Absolutely, I mean, he becomes New York governor when he comes home. You know, partially based on the popularity of. Oh yeah, here's yeah. this guy charging up someone out, albeit crazily recklessly. Uh, you oh know, yeah, the cost of many men's lives. And he becomes, but, yeah. becomes a hugely popular figure. I mean, the Spanish-American War is an overwhelming victory for the U.S., especially between you know naval forces. I mean, the Spanish are wiped out in very short order, and the United States seizes control of Spanish colonies in the Pacific and the Caribbean, and is now a global power. Mm-hmm. But I mean, T.R. believes in the ideas of social Darwinism. Yeah, popular okay. time. Let, let, yeah, I want you to tell me a little bit more about that. So I mean. Is it as simple as Roosevelt sees the world in two different lights? You know, you have the civilised against the uncivilised world. You know what I mean? Like, Roosevelt once referred to the Chinese as, uh, as a, quote, immoral, degraded and worthless race. Um, I mean, should we look upon Roosevelt as an unsavoury character? I think his, his views on race and civilization and democracy and you know, all these kind of things are, are quite nuanced and complex. I mean... T.R. believes in social Darwinism. He sees conflict, struggle, survival of the fittest, hierarchy in, you know, in man's existence as well as in nature. He also sees Britain as a model for the U.S. to emulate, influenced here by the thinking of Alfred Thayer Mahan, the, the naval theorist of the age who preaches the importance of naval power and all that kind of thing. Uh, he sees the U.S. as a world power. But you know, he tries to assert U.S. power in the name of benevolence, idealism, and the general global welfare of all peoples. I think his views on race, he uses race in the same way that many who supported the idea of an American global expansion had used it. So, for, for example, when thinking about the American occupation of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, historians such as Paul Kramer and Fabian Hilfrich have demonstrated that Roosevelt's descriptions of Filipino life were designed particularly to legitimize US occupation and the denial of self-determination to the native peoples of the islands. That's why he deployed these kind of like, you know, racist images. So Hilfrich comments that according to, to Roosevelt, uh, only nations could develop self-government, whereas tribes engaged in internecine warfare, a notion that reinforced the imperialist contention that anarchy would prevail in the islands without US sovereignty. Uh, so therefore, you know, Roosevelt uses ideas of race, hierarchy, and ability to self-govern as arguments in favour of American control of the Philippines, for example, mm-hmm. and educating the Filipino Filipino people to become civilized, to become more American, to gain self-government through learning from the tutelage of America. So he's an optimistic racist. Yeah. Oh, okay. kind of. It's the paternalistic racism. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to kind of like the, the entirely negative racism, and it is. I mean, don't get me wrong. Filipinos are viewed as tribal, childlike, all these... all these. Philippines, isn't it? Oh, I mean, the Filipino war is a pretty nasty state of affairs. I mean, so, turning to something that happened during Roosevelt's presidency then, you know, let's talk talk about, I mean, because the Panama Canal obviously didn't magic itself, you know, it's a canal, it had to be built, and it's built during Roosevelt's presidency, or, you know, um, Roosevelt takes over and asserts the US role there when I think it was the French who initially tried to build it. Um, to me, it appears kind of, and, and more generally, his approach to the American continent as a whole, 
to me, it's sort of as a layman looking at foreign policy, it appears that Roosevelt was very unhappy to impose U.S. superiority over the rest of its neighbours. Um, is this just in keeping with you know the kind of Monroe Doctrine from the eighteen twenties, um, or is or is Roosevelt an actual imperialist? You know, does he imagine an American empire? Uh, I think the uh, there's an interesting quote from the current conservative commentator George Will, who describes the Panama Canal deal as "We stole it fair and square," <laughs> and the story of how America acquires the rights to build and control the Panama Canal is interesting. And it's all down to TR. I think this is a really interesting example of TR going up against the Congress that didn't want to do anything, and TR uses presidential power to get what he wants. Outwardly, the canal, the idea of a Panama Canal, this passage across the Isthmus of Panama, connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific, is positioned as benefiting the world through global trade. It yeah. will benefit all peoples by increasing trade. Now, this isn't quite the reality of what TR is trying to do. The real reason for the Panama Canal is to increase the power and reach of the US Navy. So by building the canal, naval vessels can go between the Atlantic and the Pacific without having to make a dangerous 8,000-mile journey round South America. Okay. This is obviously hugely important if you want to have a preponderance of naval power in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. So the canal is primarily therefore about asserting and increasing American global military power an American influence in two oceans. But would you also say it's probably both influences are playing into TR's decision? Und undoubtedly. But underneath it all, there is an important thing about American naval power and American okay. like global uh, reach. So what TR does... So Panama is occupied by... Uh, it's part of Colombia. TR encourages a Panamanian rebellion. Mm -hmm. It says the Panamanians go on then, rebel against the Colombians. Uh, and when they do... And the Colombians go, oh, hang on a minute, we're not having this. Uh, TR sends some gunboats down uh, to stop the Colombian army advancing into Panama to turf out the rebels, essentially. It really is the start of a trend for the rest of the 20th century. It is gunboat. But, I mean, it's exactly what uh, you know, the kind of thing that McKinley did yeah. before the Spanish-American War, sending the USS Maine to Havana. Yeah. Not looking at, so, anyway, the gunboats go down. The Colombians decide not to suppress the Panamanian rebellion, unsurprisingly. Uh, so now at home, interestingly, TR isn't seen as an imperialist who's out to expand American power. He's seen as a man who's assisting the revolutionary spirit of the Panamanians. They are rebelling in the same way as America did in 1776. Why would we not support these people yeah. against their colonial overlords? And all that kind of thing. So he's in, in many people see him at home as fostering the spirit of the American Revolution. There's lots of stuff said about America's own revolution, and that's you know, TR identifies himself not with a kind of imperialist land grab, but with assisting democracy abroad. And lo and behold, the Panamanians gain independence <laughs> from the Colombians, and one of the first things they do is sign a very, very favourable lease with the United States to allow them to build and operate the Panama Canal. That worked out well, yeah, didn't it? I was going to say, did Roosevelt write that script and just have them and everyone else act it out? That, that seemed to unfold almost too perfectly. It works, it works well, but some of this, this is you know, kind of like long-term trends in US foreign policy. You mentioned the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. That, you know, back in the 1820s, James Monroe, as president, says, look, you European colonial powers, stay out of South America. Yeah. You know, this is an era of kind of like the, the end of, almost the end of empires in uh, in South America. So like, like, you don't come back in and try and take these countries back. Well, Roosevelt comes up with essentially what's called the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. And this 
positions the US essentially as a policeman in South America. And it comes about because of a, a crisis between Venezuela and its European creditors. Venezuela owes money to European cre creditors, including Britain, owes quite a lot of money. And there's a chance that war might break out in Latin America. And Roosevelt doesn't really want this to happen. So the Roosevelt Corollary, which he can formulate in December 1904, states that the United States would intervene as a last resort to ensure that other nations in the Western Hemisphere fulfilled their obligations to international creditors and did not violate the rights of the United States or invite, quote, foreign aggression to the detriment of the entire body of American nations. Now that sounds out like it's more supportive of kind of European creditors yeah. in the countries of, of Latin America. As things work out in practice, though, the United States increasingly uses military force to restore internal stability to nations in the region. Roosevelt himself declared that the United States might, quote, exercise international police power in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence. And really over the long term, the corollary has little to do with relations with the Western Hemisphere in Europe yep. and does serve as the justification for US intervention in but not limited to Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. Okay, so I mean, are you, like, kind of, quick answer here. Is Roosevelt's approach to foreign policy exceptional for his time? You know, I mean, Roosevelt, I mean, as the US as a whole kind of showing imperial leanings, like, I mean, does Roosevelt refer to himself as, like, you know, a pretty good imperialist? Is he exceptional? I think he's exceptional in that he's an internationalist in a time of isolationism. Okay. He sees the US having an international role, a time when large numbers of people you know, don't want the US to have an international role. He's pragmatic, he's practical, uh, and a lot of the American isolation of the time comes from the idea of free security. Because of location, weak neighbours, size, resources, the US benefits from free security and doesn't have to involve itself in world affairs or enter into international alliances and all this kind of stuff. And Roosevelt goes against that consensus and says the US does have an international and global role. So he's international at a time of isolationism, okay. I would argue. Okay, so I mean, a final kind of question on the foreign policy side of things then, I mean, what legacy would you ascribe to Aaron uh, in, the, in this area? I mean, is he one of the, the kind of great presidents of visionary um, looking forward, or is he merely a warmonger? I think he is both a, a remarkable diplomat and a man who expands American global power. And likes war. And likes, likes war. I mean, he's not a man who is afraid of conflict. I mean, he engages with diplomacy, but he's not afraid of conflict. I think he's, he was determined not simply to expand American power, but to, to demonstrate that power. Because back to his character, he uses his personal charisma and image and he also wants to demonstrate the American image of power uh, to the world through showy public relations. The best example of this is what's called the Great White Fleet. Uh, so in December 1907, sets off in the US a fleet of brightly white painted US battleships and cruisers, and they set off around on a world tour. The kind of thing sometimes referred to as being showing the flag. Uh -huh. uh, so not only does it show that the US is building a powerful navy, but also shows the navy can operate anywhere in the world. Uh, the entire thing is a major logistical ach achievement. This fleet goes on a complete round-the-world tour. They set off in December 1907, as I said, and get home in January 1909. Ironically, they have to do the big route around South America because the Panama Canal isn't finished yet. Oh, right, uh, okay. So that's one thing. So he uses the Great White Fleet, which attracts great international attention wherever it goes. 
to show American power, you know, the symbolism of American naval supremacy and international supremacy. His legacy is also kind of misconstrued in many ways. There's a really bad book uh, written about Roosevelt's international diplomacy. It's called The Imperial Cruise by James Bradley. It's not actually about the Great White Fleet, so it's stuff that happened slightly before. Uh, and again, Mike Cullinan wrote a really good review of the book. And uh, amongst other things, Bradley argues that TR ultimately instigated World War II, permitted the success of Chinese communism in 1949, uh, and led to the Korean War. That is a legacy and a half right there. And moreover, he ultimately, as Bradley, best the blame for these conflicts and the millions of dead at the feet of Theodore Roosevelt, to quote Mike Cullinan. Uh, I think it needs to be said, he was, he was a great advocate of diplomacy and peacemaking, despite being aggressive and bellicose. Uh, and again, as I'll quote Mike here again, he forestalled World War I through the Algeciras Conference in 1905. He brokered peace in the Russo-Japanese War and resolved disputes in the Caribbean. So it's a multi-layered, yes, he liked war. But yes, he also engaged in peacemaking diplomacy. But that's enough about foreign policy, I think. Mark, I know you're champing at the bit <laughs> to get to the domestic context of what TR's trying to do. So let's, let's turn to that. How did Americans view TR? What was, what was his image to the domestic audience? I think that's quite easily summed up by saying they loved him. Um, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt wins a landslide election in 1904, having been president for three years, having assumed it uh, from after McKinley's assassination. He wins every state outside of the solid Democratic South, the kind of legacy of the Civil War that still won't vote for Republicans because they're the party of Lincoln. And during the election, he promises a square deal for Americans. Um, for those of you that are up in your American history, you know that you know his distant cousin Franklin Roosevelt is going to adjust that somewhat. And, and is he the first president to offer a deal? Because after this, presidents love offering deals to the American people. I'm I'm pretty sure. I would be surprised if there's any. Yeah. I, I certainly can't think of one. Square deal, New Deal, Harry Truman's Fair Deal. Yeah. yeah. You know. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. No, and you know. The square deal is all about positioning government. Government will not favour the rich or the poor. Um, it will just employ kind of fairness to all of its dealings. And as we discussed in our Gilded Age podcast, this most definitely was not the case around about the time Roosevelt comes into office. And after Roosevelt wins this huge election, he makes a stupid mistake by pr promising never to run again. Roosevelt, like, while there was no law saying that you couldn't run again, but also Roosevelt had only won one election. He would have been fine. He wouldn't have been violating George Washington had he ran again in 1908. Um, but in kind of the, the kind of the, the joy of having won again, he declares he won't do it. Um, but and he probably would have won another landslide in 1908. He remained popular. His eventual success, successor, William Howard Taft, the larger than life uh, William Howard Taft, a heavyweight president, <laughs> if ever there was one. Yeah. Um, Roosevelt basically he was a hand-picked proxy for Roosevelt, and he and he won an easy. Uh, majority. And then when Roosevelt breaks away from the Republicans in 1912, who won't give him the nomination, um, and forms a Oh, the ingratitude <laughs> of it all. And forms the Progressive Party, which is basically just run on his personality in that campaign. He achieves the largest ever vote for a third party candidate. Basically, he was popular. So, about going back to the, the square deal uh, that you talked about there, obviously this goes against, I mean, as you said, many of the things we talked about in our Gilded Age podcast about you know corruption vested interests all these kind of things what does it mean in practice i mean you can you know he has all the rhetoric what does the square deal mean in practice 
Well, the square deal in practice means, I mean, sorry, I'll maybe go back to theory a wee bit here, that, you know, that basically business has also been allowed to boom because government is happy to profit as well from business. You know, generally, uh, most politicians, or maybe many politicians, maybe fairer, are in the hands of, 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 of business, in the pockets of them, sorry. And monopolies have been allowed to thrive. And these control almost every aspect of American life, from, for example, how much farmers will get paid for their milk to how much the passenger pays to ride the railroad. Um, you know, that the hand of monopoly power is, is, you know, is ever-present in American society at this point. And Roosevelt is the first president to stick the government's nose into the middle of this deal and to act as a counterweight on behalf of the people. And he's not, he's not a huge radical, you know, Roosevelt is not a socialist, let me get that across, you know, uh, he despises socialism as much as, if not more, than he despises the J.P. Morgans and the Rockefellers. So he, um, so he, he despises Rockefeller and he also despises Eugene Debs at the same time. Yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of hate to go around, but he, I mean, he, he, he believes in the essential soundness of American capitalism, but also he believes, that I, think he, I think he sort of believes you have to save capitalism from itself. And what Richard Hofstadter kind of described as a halfway revolution, and uh, you know, and, and what Hofstadter said about the, said about quote, I find his quote about T.R. is quite revealing. Of Roosevelt, Hofstadter said, "quote He despised the rich, but he feared the mob." So it's about trying to find that kind of middle there. So in essence, the square deal is about placing the federal government, uh, which is a new idea in a collection of states, as a neutral arbiter, arbitrator, sorry, between big business and the American people. So the, you know, you're kind of, you've positioned the kind of like square deal as this kind of like, you know, a deal between government, business, the American people. Now, so what concrete achievements are there? You know, what, what, does, what does Roosevelt actually achieve with this square deal? Or in his presidency? So Roosevelt has a lot of achievements, but no great ones. That's the thing. Roosevelt, there is no great crisis in Roosevelt's presidency. Perhaps you could point to Perhaps you could say the foresight of TR's leadership averted many crises we'll never know that could have happened. But if you want to look at actual achievements, I mean, you had, he got, it was known as a trust buster, i.e. like, you know, the monopolies, for example. He employed the Sherman Antitrust Act far more than any of his predecessors had um, to kind of, to, to, to lay down a marker that government will not tolerate um, monopolies uh, continuing to control American life. He's the first president to intervene in a strike. He intervenes in the coal strike. Um, with a successful end um, where coal strike workers are given some rights they probably wouldn't have been had Roosevelt not intervened. He pushed through the hip. On that coal strike, though, I mean, it's quite interesting the reason he intervenes in that, is it not, that he sees it as a conflict between two different special interests group, groups. On one hand, you know, the, the striking miners. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the big coal companies. And he thought that the conflict between the two was injurious to the, the national well-being. Yes. As, as Robert Dalek, the great presidential historian, yeah. uh, would have. It's, it's interesting he sees both sides as special interest groups and wants to but arbitrate that, between the two of them. But that's significant because yeah. most wouldn't have seen Labour... As, as a special a, as interest a, group, yeah. On the basis that most, at uh, this time, you know, Labour was fighting to get any recognition from government. You know, most 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 times these strikes were just put down because they were illegal mm. and they were seen as illegal. So this is when Labour's trying to gain a foothold, and Roosevelt has some sympathy uh, with the Labour movement, um, which you know is is a very kind of progressive uh, view to hold at the time. And he also, I mean, you have the Hepburn Act, which regulates the railroad rate, railroad rates. Um, you have the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is very important, and Roosevelt 
can have used the bully pulpit to get both of those through. But perhaps his greatest legacy uh, is more ephemeral in how it helped the American people. I mean, in spite of his love of killing animals, and by God did Theodore Roosevelt oh, love to kill animals. Oh, he loved Bill Gates, big game hunting. Yes, yeah. I mean, TR is the first major conservation president, as I think you mentioned earlier. You know, doubles the number of national parks, protects God knows how many um, kind of uh, species of animal, and he protects areas such as the Grand Canyon and implements a variety of measures that, that they conserve the great American landscape, you know. And he does this by completely reinterpreting an act called the Antiquities Act that wasn't meant for the purpose he used it, but he just kind of went, oh, I don't care, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to dish out all these things. So, I mean, uh, Roosevelt shows does have concrete achievements, um, and he also uses the Billy Pulpit to kind of push ideas that might not become law during his time, but will become law later, such as kind of income inequality, uh, increased participatory democracy, kind of direct election of senators, a uh, popular election of senators, and bargaining rights of labour that we've discussed, and also the tentative steps towards a welfare state um, to protect the rich and poor alike, i.e., you know, a welfare state that draws upon everybody. Um, so, a combination of these issues combined with his achievements is what cements TR as the first progressive president of the United States. So you describe him there as the, the first progressive president uh, of the United States. What exactly do you mean when you say he's a progressive president? What do you mean by progressive? Well, Mark, that's a pretty cheeky question because, as you know, we could easily have another podcast on that. We could I have mean, an entire series yeah, of podcasts on that. Historians are still, and bearing in mind the progressive era is a long since gone. We're, we're talking 100 years ago now. Historians are still debating what progressivism was and who the progressives were. Some, such as the historian Peter Filene, even argue that a progressive movement did not ex ever exist. Um, in my humble opinion, progressivism was driven by a sense that the balance of power in American society had swung too dramatically to a small number of people, many of whom had enjoyed privileged upbringings. Remember, this is a time of huge income inequality, although I say that knowing that income equality is far worse now. I mean, the stat in 1893 is that 9% of families own 71% of the wealth. Uh, what is it now? It's something like the top 1% own 90% of the wealth, I think, in America, something like that. And not only was government not helping this problem when TR comes in, it was perceived as contributing to this privilege. Thus, progressives can ad advocate this counterweight of the federal government, and it took a man of privilege, ironically, in Theodore Roosevelt to drive that change Although there's certainly, there was a lot left to do when he left office. I mean, if you look at the Triangle Fire in New York in 1911, when over 100 factory workers, most of whom were women, die because the, the owners refused to improve the factory conditions. You know, you see the unfinished agenda that TR left. Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I mean, broadly agree. I mean, I, I tend to agree with, uh, with like, Peter Feline's uh, comments that, you know, there isn't really a progressive movement in America. Uh, it is a number of disparate interest groups campaigning for different things, but it's interesting to see the ideals of progressivism vested in one man. Mm. They become <laughs> vested in TR as someone who does use the power of the presidency. And this goes back to what we talked right at the very start of the podcast. He uses the power of the presidency yeah. uh, to achieve particular ends that he wants to achieve. Uh, turning to his kind of like time when he stands as a particularly progressive candidate, uh, in the election of 1912, he stands as the leader of the Progressive Party, a third party in American politics. What happens in that election? Well, just to give you some background, 
Roosevelt is running in this election because he's disillusioned with William Taft, his hand-picked successor, mainly on the basis that William Howard Taft is not Theodore Roosevelt. Also, Taft isn't as progressive as Roosevelt wants him to be, but mostly it's just, I think, that Roosevelt wants to be president again. Um, and he bolts the Republican convention uh, to form the Progressive Party when it's clear Republicans won't give him the nomination. And he's the more, and it's the, as I said, it's the most successful third-party candidacy in U.S. history. He carries six states. He blows Taft out of the water. Um, but ultimately, what the main effect Roosevelt had is that he lets Woodrow Wilson into the White House, the Democrat. Um, and funnily enough, Woodrow Wilson will actually pass much of what Roosevelt advocated. You know, he'll pass child labour laws, women's suffrage, the popular election of senators, the eight-hour working day. So in some sense, you can almost see Roosevelt's defeat in 1912 as a, as a success, as a victory. Um, because he, a lot of the policies the progressives advocate are passed during the next, the next Congress. So, I mean, final question then. Uh, how, how do you think we reconcile the progressive domestic Roosevelt and the imperialist foreign policy Roosevelt? That's, that's an interesting question, and it actually draws on what you were talking about earlier. The historian Kathleen Dalton, she, she convincingly argues that Roosevelt should be understood through the perspective of nationalism. In other words, his nationalism demanded that the US move from a secondary to a primary world power, and his national pride led him to want to build a better, more progressive America. Um, I mean, like he looked at some of the reforms in countries such as France, Germany, and Britain, um, like, you know, France had established healthcare for the elderly and a maximum working day. David Lloyd George is leading the Liberals to reform, you know, like in the Asquith government in Britain. Um, and, you know, Theodore Roosevelt would be at these conferences where the US was being mocked for being backwards. So in many ways, he saw progressivism as a way to, you know, for the US to catch up with the Europeans in terms of, in terms of reform. For Roosevelt, ultimately, the US must keep up and be strong abroad also meant it had to be strong and united at home. Um, I mean, what's, what's your take on it? Well, I think, I mean, I, I would agree with much of uh, what you've said there. I think Roosevelt is an instructive and interesting figure to look at because he clearly illustrates that it is ridiculous to just boil people down Kind of describing them in single ways, like Roosevelt was an imperialist, Roosevelt was a progressive, Roosevelt was a racist, Roosevelt was this, yeah, trying to boil them down to one thing. He was all of these things, yeah. and, and so much more. And it's the summation of all these things that makes Roosevelt so interesting. It is fascinating that he was an accomplished diplomat, but he also wasn't afraid of going to war. He was, in many ways, a racist. But he had a great sense of responsibility. Uh, and at home, he had a great sense of, you know, engaging in progressive domestic policies and all that. So he's very nuanced and very complex. You know, despite this outward, you know, big beaming kind of, you know, lovable TR and he's kind of like rugged outdoor personality and charisma and all that kind of thing. A very complex character and very illustrative of the fact we can't just look at historical figures and see them as, you know, they are either this or this. They're kind of all these different things. And that's where TR is kind of useful and interesting as well. A fascinating character. Yeah. So T TR is, is the president that reminds us that nuance is required. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Great. So, I mean, we'll wrap up here in a second. So, I mean, just kind of concluding, I find what's interesting about Roosevelt as well, sort of, is Roosevelt himself, a historian, 
noted that without any great crisis, you can't be a great president. I mean, Roosevelt probably had all the tools to be in that upper tier. I mean, he's on, on Mount Rushmore. You know, he's up there with Jefferson, Lincoln and Washington. But I don't think anyone will see him in equal standing with them. And what's more with Roosevelt, you know, he would be outdone by his distant cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, um, who did face a great crisis in the form of the Great Depression. And then the, he faced two great crises, the Great Depression and the Second World War. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in the next podcast of American History 2. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me as well. Goodbye. Cheerio. Thank you.